Hi, everyone, and welcome to the National Governors Association's brand new innovation podcast series, Ahead of the Curve. I'm Brian Sandoval, Governor of Nevada and Chair of the National Governors Association. Through my NGA Chair's initiative, Ahead of the Curve, Innovation Governors, I've been helping my fellow governors prepare their states for the ongoing technology disruption in the energy and transportation sectors. And that is what we are here to discuss as part of the NGA Innovation podcast series. This episode focuses on the growing electrification of the transportation sector, including through personal vehicles, buses, ports, and airports. We will feature a discussion with some of the principal thought leaders in this area. You can find more information about this podcast and my initiative on our website, njahead.org. I'll now hand the mic over to Sue Gander at the National Governors Association to begin our conversation. Thank you, Governor Sandoval, and welcome everyone to the Ahead of the Curve podcast on transportation electrification. I'm thrilled to have with us today Jeff Allen, who is the Executive Director of Forth. He'll be helping us learn more about the technology advancements we've been seeing in the electric vehicle space, discuss the types of policy actions states have been taking, and share his vision for what's on the horizon the governor should prepare for now. Jeff, welcome to the show. And before we get into that discussion, can you just tell us a little bit more about Forth and the work that you do? Sure, Sue. It's great to be with you today. So Forth is an advocate and trade association advancing electric and smart mobility Uh, We are based in the Pacific Northwest, and we basically do four things. We have a, as I say, we're a trade association moving to advance the industry. We have about 150 members from across the entire ecosystem of mobility. We also do a number of demonstration and pilot projects, and we do direct consumer education. I'm actually talking to you right now from our uh, storefront brand neutral electric vehicle showroom in downtown Portland. Uh, And then we do a lot of work around policy and helping cities, states, utilities, other stakeholders develop and implement policies to advance electric and smart mobility as well. As you know, this is a really exciting moment in the EV world. And it it seems like this technology, which has been around for well over a century, is is poised for for large-scale adoption both in the U.S. and abroad. And I just returned from Forth's Roadmap Conference in Portland, Oregon, and I was struck there by really just the huge excitement around the many benefits that an electrified transportation sector can yield. And, you know, there was also a healthy dose of caution around some of the steps that still need to be taken to support electrification and also to have it be accessible to everyone. Jeff, you've been running these Roadmap Conferences since 2009. What's your sense of where we're at compared to years past? You know, who are some of these new players and issues that have been coming up? And what do you see as the key trends that are influencing adoption and and where the industry is headed in in the next 10 or 15 years? (laughs) Well, there's a lot to unpack in that question. I would say a couple of things. So first of all, uh, we are definitely climbing the, uh, the hockey stick, as it were, in terms of levels of interest in transportation electrification both among the general public, you know, sales have climbed every year somewhere between you know, 20 to 50 percent, but also among electric utilities, among uh, government stakeholders, probably the real clincher for me among consulting firms. So uh, when they start to come out in numbers, we know we're, we're on to something. So overall, the growth has been amazing. This year's roadmap conference was about 30 percent 
bigger than last year's and last year's was about 30% bigger than the year before that. So it's reflected across the board. And in terms of trends and themes that we're seeing, particularly this year, first of all, and you touched on it, I would say that the equity discussion is moving more front and center. And that's something that we've been working at for a couple of years now. We had a number of workshops on that subject uh, at the conference, and there's a number of demonstration projects that we've been involved in. Um, we can talk about those more. I think also an increasing focus on heavy-duty electric uh, transportation. So early on, a lot of the focus was around passenger cars, and we all know them, and we all have a love-hate relationship with our cars. But increasingly, we're seeing real opportunity around electric transit buses, electric school buses, other heavy-duty equipment like forklifts, yard haulers, trucks like the, uh, the Daimler product that was on display at um, Roadmap. And then I think the, uh, the third major trend I would just highlight is the increasing role and focus on policy, particularly at the state and local level in advancing electric transportation. Um, I would say that we're sort of where things were with uh, energy efficiency or renewables a few decades ago when it comes to transportation. Uh, we have some real catching up to do, and I think folks are starting to, to do that work in earnest. Great. And you've mentioned a couple of different trends that we do want to get into later in the show. Uh, but let's start with hearing a little bit more about the why and some of the motivations for why these these vehicles are becoming more attractive, more popular. Um, we have seen the technology cost drop, and we have a number of federal and state incentives that have helped get EVs to the point of where they are becoming cost competitive with an internal combustion engine vehicle, at least in terms of the total cost of ownership over the, the lifetime of the vehicle. And we also know that EVs offer tremendous air quality, CO2 emissions benefits, particularly as the electric grid, which fuels the car essentially, is, is becoming cleaner and cleaner. How do you see those benefits affecting EV adoption and what do you think are some of the other larger you know, societal or economic benefits that EVs offer, um, for instance, around electric grid reliability and resilience? Just give us a sense of the motivations be behind the adoption. You touched on a bunch of them, um, but I would actually start with electric cars are better cars. <laughs> They're more fun to drive. They're uh, zippier. They accelerate really well. You don't smell like gasoline or have to stop at the gas station. And they are also cheaper to operate in much of the country, like here in the West, uh, the cost of driving an electric vehicle comes out to about a dollar a gallon equivalent of gasoline. Um, it's been a long time since you could buy gas for a dollar a gallon. So there's a number of those benefits. Uh, I always point folks to the numbers that the Union of Concerned Scientists updates uh, periodically, and their latest report came out and said driving an electric vehicle here in the Northwest is equivalent to driving a gas car that gets 94 miles per gallon, uh, which of course doesn't exist. But if it did exist, that's, that's how good it would have to be. So climate benefits are huge. And you mentioned the uh, tailpipe air quality benefits, uh, I think, are almost more important. Um, air pollution from cars is the largest source of air pollution in most of our urban areas. And obviously, electric vehicles have no tailpipe emissions uh, at all. And then you also mentioned the grid benefits. And again, uh, most of our electric utilities, because we've been so good at energy efficiency, have been facing stable or declining load. 
And um, this is an opportunity to replace some of that lost load with much more energy efficient uh, transportation. And it's a load that's very flexible. So, you know, you can dispatch that load, if you will. It's very easy for folks to charge at eight o'clock or 10 o'clock or midnight instead of charging right at five o'clock when they get home. And there's a number of projects going on using batteries in the cars as a grid resource, whether it's to provide frequency regulation services or other kinds of grid services or to manage the rate at which charging happens to, to balance the grid or potentially even doing two-way charging where you're pulling power out of those vehicle batteries. You're obviously a believer in the technology um, and many other folks are, are getting to that point as well. But we also know that EVs haven't been as popular as some have predicted or, or maybe hoped. And one reason that's pointed to for this is this factor of range anxiety. And wanted you to weigh in on range anxiety, you know, what it means, what it truly is about, particularly in this day and age as, as we're seeing more infrastructure being built. And what do you think it's going to take to overcome that as a, as a barrier? Well, first of all, I prefer to talk about it as charging anxiety because most people don't really have any idea how much they drive on an average day, how many miles they drive. And most people who don't have an electric car have no idea where the nearest charging station is or how many charging stations exist. So it's not so much that people are anxious about being able to drive as far as they need to. It's more that people are anxious because it's a new technology and they're not familiar with it and they just don't know. And it plays into probably the biggest challenge we face with electric uh, cars is that no, most people don't know they exist. The first problem is people don't know about the cars. They don't know how the charging works. I was just talking to someone used this analogy that, you know, I have a dog now. Before I had a dog, I, there's no way I could have told you where the nearest vet was or where the nearest pet food store was. But now that I have a dog, I know where all of those things are, and there's lots of them. It's the same thing with an electric car. Once people have one and they start looking around and identifying where the charging is and figuring out how that's going to work for them, most of that anxiety goes away. That sounds encouraging. One thing that we hear from states all the time is they do want to try to be part of that rollout of of the EV charging infrastructure, but it challenges they're not sure how to pay for it. They're very excited about the influx of funding that's coming as part of the Volkswagen Clean Air Act settlement. States can elect to spend up to 15% of that settlement, their portion of that settlement on public charging infrastructure and VW itself is spending another $10 billion over the next 10 years about building out um, a new system, and that's fantastic. But we know it's only going to fill maybe a quarter or so of the gap that people have identified. So people are trying to figure out what are some of the financing models or other ways that they can help fund and leverage the funding that they're getting to build out infrastructure. So what are your ideas or what are you seeing on the ground that might help states uh, who do want to um, help support greater infrastructure being built? The first thing, of course, is that we would encourage every state to take advantage of the opportunity presented by that one-time Volkswagen Settlement Fund to put that full 15% into charging infrastructure. That's a really a rare opportunity. And our feeling is that because that's one-time money, it should really be focused on transformative investments. The second thing that states can do is make sure that they are their public utility commissions 
and regulatory bodies are allowing utilities to invest in this space. And in fact, I would argue should be directing utilities to invest in this space. And again, this is an area where number of studies have shown that electric vehicles put downward pressure on rates and benefit all utility customers, whether they own an electric car or not. Because again, if you have more charging in the middle of the night, more kilowatt hours being sold, it helps pay off those expensive power plants that other ratepayers are otherwise going to have to pay for. So that's the second thing. Third thing is that I think states uh, do have a role in making some targeted investments or providing some targeted incentives for charging. In particular, I would say uh, workplace charging. We know that people who can charge at work are six times more likely to own an electric vehicle. So providing that kind of incentive to employers to provide charging at work and also just making sure that all the state's other programs, so for example, if states manage uh, trip reduction uh, programs under the Clean Air Act, that those programs are also providing information about workplace charging and electric vehicles and other smart mobility options. If the state's going to have a tax incentive or a rebate or credit for charging, I would look really hard at workplace charging as a top priority, more so than residential charging, because putting a charger in your garage in a single family home is a pretty cheap and easy thing to do for most people. The other kind of charging that states should be looking at incentivizing is what's called DC fast charging. And these are the chargers that are 50 kilowatts or faster typically and can charge up a car in half an hour or so. Very important for long range trips, but also for travel in and around urban areas. And there's a few interesting models there, but one I would point folks towards is the what's called the EVIP program in Washington state, where the state is making some very highly leveraged grants to put in that kind of infrastructure. And the funding source they've used initially is part of a fee on EV drivers. Um, so the drivers themselves are paying for that infrastructure. You answered one of the questions I had in my head about um, the speed of charging and how that plays into things. So that's really helpful. We've been hearing a lot about DC fast charging and states are asking questions around, you know, should we be looking at that technology versus other technologies? This might be a good chance to put in a plug, though, that we have uh, a lot of this information on our website uh, at fourthmobility.org, including kind of basics on you know, what is level one charging, what is level two charging, what is DC fast charging, basic information like that, as well as a basic uh, kind of EV 101 fact sheet about electric vehicles for consumers that we now have in seven different languages uh, available as well. So Jeff, another question that we hear from states uh, is around infrastructure is where should it go? Um, You mentioned workplace charging and the importance there. There's home charging, obviously, as well. But when they're out on the road, they want to know, they want to see that there's options. Working with Nevada over this past year and Governor Sandoval, um, they've been very excited about building out their electric highway. Nevada's also partnering with eight states and an MOU throughout the Intermountain West to build out more of a corridor uh, of infrastructure um, for recharging. What are your ideas around planning that location and how states can work together in regional partnerships? Regional partnerships are critically important, and that's a great model. I mean, one of the first things that happened on the West Coast was the creation of the West Coast Electric Highway, 
uh, where Oregon, Washington, California, and British Columbia came together with this vision of putting fast chargers all the way down um, Interstate 5 so folks could travel that corridor freely. And I think the model that's happening now in Nevada and the, and the Western states is a great example of that. Um, focusing on that vision and then uh, working backwards from that vision with partners to figure in, figure out how do you fill in those gaps along the highway. In terms of location and siting, this is far harder than people who people who have not put in charging infrastructure can't appreciate how challenging it really is to find good sites and to um, arrange those real estate uh, transactions and so forth. So the first thing I would say is seek seek professional help, whether that's a private charging company or electric utility um, or other partners. The top thing people are looking for at a fast charger are what you would expect. Is it safe? Is it open 24 hours? Is there a bathroom? Is there Wi-Fi? Um, is there something to do for that half hour or more uh, while I'm there? And uh, so that's probably the most important set of factors to look at. Okay, I want to move just a little bit beyond mostly our conversation has been, I think, in my mind, anyhow, about passenger vehicles. And, and you mentioned already mm-hmm. the rise in other types of um, vehicles, vehicle types that are being electrified, transit, heavy duty. What are some of the trends you're seeing outside of cars? And how are states engaging with those the players that are involved in, in those other types of technology? The move towards heavier duty vehicles is one of the, the strongest trends we've seen in the last few years, starting first with electric transit buses. Um, even three to five years ago, I think most people would have said that those are you know, promising but early stage technologies. There were a few very small pilots and very quickly that technology has become mainstream and competitive. Um, so the city of Shenzhen in China has converted already its entire transit bus fleet to electric. And then there's a number of U.S. transit districts that have pledged to go 100% electric uh, as they replace their bus fleets over the next several years. And there's huge benefits to electric transit buses. I mean, obviously, those vehicles are extremely inefficient, single-digit uh, gas mileage, and they're running on diesel, which is highly toxic and polluting. The lower operating costs of electric vehicles are a huge benefit to transit districts. The air pollution benefits, both in the neighborhoods and also inside the bus, provide huge benefits, particularly to the communities that have typically been impacted the most by air pollution. So, And there's lower maintenance costs for electric vehicles, electric buses. So that's that's coming on very strong over the next few years. Right behind it is electric school buses. And there have been uh, several demonstration pilot projects around the U.S. And I would say that those vehicles are kind of where transit buses were a couple of years ago. They're being produced in fairly small numbers. They're being used in demonstration projects. But I think far faster than anyone thinks that's going to become the new normal for um, school districts. Uh, and again, the benefits to protecting the health of children on top of all the operational benefits are pretty pretty compelling. And then behind that, we're seeing electrification in more and more heavy vehicles, um, yard haulers that move trailers around port areas. Daimler just exhibited at our conference uh, an electric truck and a number of the large truck manufacturers are moving into that space. 
So I think we're going to see um, more and more of those kinds of vehicles. And then lastly, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention um, what's called shore power. So this is where you take kind of a hybrid approach and you have, for example, a big tractor trailer uh, that's carrying refrigerated produce. Well, right now, those typically idle their diesel engine to keep the trailer cold while they're loading, unloading, transporting that produce. It's incredibly inefficient and polluting. And if you can plug that trailer into the grid while you're loading and unloading, you can save a lot of money, a lot of diesel emissions, uh, and a lot of carbon as well. Jeff, I want to bring up another topic. Actually, you raised it earlier, um, and that's the one of equity. Can you say a little bit more about how that issue is playing out? Our work is increasingly focused on uh, equity questions and how do you make sure that these technologies are relevant and available to traditionally underserved communities. It's a real imperative for the industry, but it's also honestly where you get the most benefit for air quality, for climate, and for the economy. So I think the first place to start, and, and it's critically important for underserved communities to be able to access electric and new mobility technologies uh, because they typically spend an even higher percentage of their income on transportation. They typically have a lot fewer options available to them. And uh, for consumers as a whole in the United States, you know, transportation is usually the second highest household expense uh, after housing. And for low-income consumers, those two are really tightly linked um, because a lot of times the only places to find affordable housing are places that are not well served by transit and are fairly far out of job centers. So it's a critically important issue. The first thing we found that's fairly important is to start by, um, by listening and seeking to understand the mobility needs of traditionally underserved communities. I can guarantee you um, that going into these communities and saying, hey, if I got a car for you, does not go over very well. Um, So starting by understanding how are folks uh, getting around to where they need to go now? What are their mobility challenges? uh, What are the concerns? And a good example of this, we just worked with a community-based partner here called Opal Environmental Justice to do a needs assessment for electric and advanced mobility in the Portland area. And, you know, we always learn things that we would not have predicted. So, for example, one of the barriers to accessing these technologies is the availability of uh, broadband Wi-Fi so that folks can access the data and can use the smartphone technology that they need to use to access some of these technologies. So start by listening. The second I would say is we need to start with mobility solutions. And what I mean by that is a lot of states and utilities and other well-intentioned actors will kind of look at this space and say, okay, well, we'll put a certain percentage of charging stations into low-income neighborhoods. That's how we're going to solve this problem. And that is can be extremely counterproductive because if you go into, imagine you go into an um, apartment building in a low-income neighborhood and put in charging stations, no one in that building currently drives an electric car what you've done is just add an amenity that's going to attract um, uh, new tenants who are going to raise rents and speed gentrification potentially without providing any benefit to the folks who already live there. So much more helpful to start by coming in and figuring out how to bring electric vehicles to the folks who live in that building, helping them buy their own, providing some kind of a shared 
EV service, and then provide the charging to serve that population um, rather than the other way around. And that would take me to my last point, which is I think there's a lot of work to be done in um, demonstration and pilot projects, starting with lots of grounded, fairly modest pilot projects. Um, these can be done for a couple hundred thousand dollars, doesn't cost a ton of money, and really start to build that awareness and that engagement uh, from the ground up. There are a couple of other bigger ticket things that states can do to promote equity and electric mobility. Uh, one is as states create incentives or rebates for electric vehicles, making sure that there is a higher level rebate for lower income drivers and that there's some kind of a rebate available for used electric vehicles. So I think one of the things that we need to do as we think about equity is make sure that we understand the situation. So people have a misperception sometimes that electric vehicles are expensive. The truth is there's a half a dozen new electric cars that you can lease for less than $200 a month. And in many of our states, you can buy a two or three-year-old electric car for less than $10,000 and then run it for less than $30 a month. So there's a number of very affordable electric cars out there. The other misperception is that only rich people buy new cars. Also not true. There's actually no difference in the likelihood of buying a new car among the middle 80% of the population. It goes down some for the lowest 20% of income and up some for the highest 20%. But certain people buy new cars, and that's not just rich people. And the other misperception is that low-income folks don't own cars. And the data nationally is that most low-income folks are very reliant on cars. They just tend to be very cheap and unreliable cars. So again, I think starting grounded in the reality of the community, how are people getting around now and how can we use these technologies to make their lives better? Thank you, Jeff. We're going to wrap up now. We really appreciate you being with us and sharing your thoughts on vehicle electrification and how states can prepare for that and stay ahead of the curve. Thank you. Thank you. 